Father, indeed, we do worship and praise you today because you have revealed yourself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise you because you are infinite and eternal and unchangeable in your being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And in spite of that, O God, we confess that we've not loved you with our whole heart. We confess that we've not loved our neighbors as we have loved ourselves. And yet we're grateful that through the Lord Jesus Christ, you've not rewarded us as our iniquities deserve. But because of Christ, you've removed them as far as the east is from the west. Lord Jesus, we worship you and praise you that you came and humbled yourself unto death, even the death of the cross. And we acknowledge today that you are our prophet, that you've come declaring the will of God and the way of salvation. We acknowledge that you are our priest, the one who offered the one eternal perfect sacrifice for our sins, and that you live forevermore and ever live to make intercession for us. We acknowledge that you are our king, that you rule and reign over us by your word and by your spirit, and that you are continually subduing more and more of yourself to us and subduing ourselves to you, that we might live to the praise of the glory of your grace. We pray that through us, individually and corporately today, that you would spread this wonderful message of the gospel of grace, that it would spread in power, that it would spread to the enlargement and advancement of your kingdom. We thank you that because of all that you are to us and for us, we're able to come boldly to a throne of grace today and obtain grace and mercy in our time of need. And we cast all of our cares and concerns upon you, knowing that you care for us. And, Father, you've demonstrated that so fully, so finely in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do cast our concerns before you, mindful that there are many needs in the grace community. We commit them to you in prayer today and pray that you would show your sufficiency in our weakness, that you would show your strength, that you would show your sovereignty, that you would reveal yourself not only as a Savior but also as a healer. Father, we pray that through the continued ministry of the Word of God in its varied forms, both in word and deed, that you would continue the work of renewal in our midst and even grant that it may spill over the boundaries and that more and more of our lives would be yielded more fully to you, that we might reflect your honor and glory through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we prepare to give today, we recognize that we give nothing but what you've not already given to us. We pray that you would take these gifts, given willingly, given joyfully, given in obedience to your word, and use them to advance and further your kingdom. For all of this we ask and pray now in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles and uh, open with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Jonathan Kozal embarked on a very adventuresome journey before Christmas in 1985. He wanted to write a book on what it meant to be homeless and with children in America. And so he started this um, trip and it was too broad. He narrowed his aim to interview and find out what it meant to be a homeless mother with children in America. So he started this great endeavor. He ended up interviewing hundreds and hundreds of women who had children and were without benefit of family and were without benefit of shelter. He ended up in New York City where he interviewed hundreds of women who were in a similar plight. Many of them 
witness to being abandoned, feeling abandoned, feeling forsaken, feeling neglected and abused. His one interview with the lady that's captured in this quote, I think, summarizes how all of them felt. He interviewed this lady in a homeless shelter in New York City where she had been living for a number of years. And she voiced the question of many. She said, I believe God is there. But when he sees us like this, I'm wondering, where is he? Where is he? Where is God? You know, that same question was asked by our Lord in a different form in Matthew chapter 27. In verses 45 and 47, our text this morning in preparation to come to the Lord's table. And if you'd follow with me in the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ's fifth utterance through parched lips on Calvary's cross summarized the agony of his soul. It was An utterance uttered in palpable darkness, as darkness had descended upon Calvary at this present moment. The presence of darkness, I think, represents in a very real, a very tangible, a very felt way, judgment. If you're familiar with the seven statements of Christ from the cross, this is the fifth of seven statements that our Lord would make. The first three were made from noon until three Then the first statement, he offers a prayer for forgiveness in Luke 23. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. In the second statement, he opens the gates of heaven to a repentant thief being crucified beside him. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. In the third statement our Lord made, he transferred the care of his mother To his beloved disciple, John, he says to his mom, behold, your son. And he says to John, behold, your mother with the scorching Palestinian sun at its apex. This is a moment of indescribable agony and darkness descends like an inky film as though the sun has disintegrated. It was midnight at midday to use the words of the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Darkness always represented, almost always represented in the Scripture, judgment. It's frequently mentioned by the prophets. It was used by God as a plague upon Egypt in Exodus chapter 10. And the prophets warned of coming days of darkness in which God would judge both nations and individuals. And the sign of his judgment would be darkness. Even our Lord described hell as being a place of outer darkness. Where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so without a doubt, darkness signaled the divine judgment had fallen on Calvary's tree. It's ironic to me that at Calvary from noon until three, men who love darkness are given a sign that matches the blackness of their hearts. Except the one suspended there was innocent of sin. He was guiltless. He was The just one dying for the unjust, he was the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. The darkness signals, for those of you who are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, it signals that aspect of the Apostles' Creed when Christ is said to descend into hell. 
many ways, it's an evident and grim reminder of the reality of God's wrath. His holy revulsion to that which is a contradiction of His holiness. Because of God's wrath, because of His moral perfection reacting to moral perversity, the light of the world is extinguished for a few hours on a hill outside Jerusalem called Calvary. In many ways, it's a portent of a coming day of judgment for all who do not believe and rest on Christ as He's offered so freely in the gospel. It's a coming day of judgment typified here in many ways. If you're familiar with Dante's Inferno emblazoned over the gaping, yawning abyss, gaping, yawning gate before unspeakable horror is these words in bold letters. All who enter here abandon hope. I'd submit to you today that this cry of being forsaken by God is the eternal cry of the damned in hell. The presence of darkness did more than signify or represent judgment. The plea of Christ is the result of a very real judgment in verse 46, near the end of this time, from noon until three, at about three, this cry, this lament, pierces the darkness, and it's heard in the midst of thick blackness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the stunning truth is that the Son is momentarily forsaken by the Father. It's the only time Jesus ever addressed his father as God, ironically. The separation he felt was real. The judgment that he felt was real. It's not that it wasn't typical for a crucified person to emit long, anguished cries. One scholar writes that what made crucifixion so gruesome was the screams of rage and pain, the wild curses and outbreaks of Nameless despair of the unhappy victims. But Jesus' cry was not that kind of cry. It was not a cry of rage. It was not a cry of nameless despair. This is the cry of the sinless, perfect Son of God entering the abyss of death and darkness as the only Redeemer of God's people. This is the cry of Him who had perfect, intimate fellowship with the Father from before the foundation of the world. This is the cry of the one who had said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. This is the cry of one who had never known anything but perpetual, perfect, intimate fellowship with His Father. It's the cry of one whom J.I. Packer said was receiving both God's justice And his mercy joined together so that God could be just and merciful to those who would believe and receive and rest upon Christ. Martin Luther, the scholar of the Protestant Reformation, posed the question, God forsaken by God? Who can understand that? Who can understand that? Indeed, how can we even begin to fathom God forsaking God? I think it had everything to do with what Christ was doing on the cross. Bearing sin, carrying sin, wearing sin. Every Old Testament sacrifice pointed in a very real way. It was a shadow of the one to come. 
He is the light. Every Passover observance was a promise. Here's the reality. Here's the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Every day of atonement in which the high priest would come out and confess sins over a goat and they would slit the throat of the goat and its blood be poured out and he would enter into the very holy of holies and pour that blood upon the broken law of God. The law of God which said you'll have no other gods before me. The law of God which said you shall not worship or bow down to idols. The law of God which said you shall not use or invoke my name lightly. The law of God which said remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The law of God that sanctified marriage. The law of God that preserved the sanctity of life and said you shall not murder. The law of God that said you shall not bear false witness. You shall not take that which is not yours. And the law of God which touched the inclination of each one of our hearts today that said you shall not covet that which is not yours. That broken law of God in the holy of holies screamed guilt, guilt, guilt. And the high priest went in and poured the blood of an innocent lamb to appease and atone and cover the guilt. Every day of atonement, every Yom Kippur pointed forward to him who was to come, who would shed his blood and go into the very holy of holies in heaven and say, Father, here is my blood. Forgive them. Here is the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. I think in many ways this cry of lamentation, this fifth statement, explains what our Lord dreaded and what our Lord endured in prayer the night before in Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26 says that as Jesus entered Gethsemane, He took specifically Peter, James, and John and went a little further into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said to them that he was sorrowful. He said he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And Jesus says to Peter and James and John, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And three times the Bible says that Jesus said, Oh, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. A second time Jesus prayed, Oh, my Father... If there's any other way, let this cup pass. But if it cannot pass, not my will, but your will be done. Beloved, I think it was more than the physical agony of the cross that our Lord was shrinking from. Repeatedly, he had said throughout the scripture, he had warned throughout the gospel, he had predicted to his disciples that he was headed to the cross. So it wasn't a surprise. What was it our Lord dreaded? Listen, in the prayer, three times he said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup? The cup was one of God's judgment. The cup was God's holy, just reaction to sin and sinners. It was the cup of wrath that we should have drunk. But Jesus, as our substitute, drank from the cup in our place. Oh, beloved of God. The final drops of sin's vile poison was drained on Calvary's hill from noon until three. And every last 
holy reaction of God against sin was atoned for and appeased, satisfied, and extinguished by our Lord Jesus Christ. Ripken says, It was as if God had taken a giant bucket and scooped all the sins of His people and dumped them all out on Jesus. Every disobedient deed, every lustful stare, every lustful thought, every lustful word, every lustful act, every evil longing of the heart, indeed every transgression, not one excluded, was poured out upon Jesus Christ. If there remained one drop, listen, if there remained one drop in the cup that our Lord did not drain and drink down, then you and I are yet under a just condemnation from a morally perfect and infinitely holy God. But Isaiah says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Hundreds of years later, and several years after this, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 would pen what I think are the 15 words of hope for each one of us. Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I love the songs we sang today. Because not for one moment would I want to stand before the living God today, dressed in my own righteousness, of which I have none. Not for one moment would I want to stand before the just judge of all the earth, and make a final appearance in the court from which there is no appeal, in my own unaided efforts, in my own good deeds, in my own vainly imagined merits. I want to stand there dressed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to stand before Him in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross of Christ I cling. It was as if God treated Jesus as if he were guilty of every one of your sins, every one of them, none accepted, none excluded, so that God in the richness of his grace and his justice, having been satisfied, could treat you as though you were forgiven and righteous. Amazing grace, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. You know what our Lord's next statement was after this? After he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what our Lord's next statement was? John 19:30. It is finished. It is finished. It's not nearly finished. I wish it were finished. It's almost finished and there's more to be added. He said, it is finished. And then his last statement was, Father, again, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Oh, what a great Savior we have. What a great Savior he is. What a joy to be able to come to the table of the Lord today, knowing that we do not drink of the cup, we do not eat of the bread, 
because we've got our act together, because we've lived a perfect life this week and the week after that, or between now and the last time we've celebrated the Lord's Supper. We come to the table today because he drank of the cup of judgment that you can drink from this cup today with joy and with gladness. There is much grace to be found in this fifth statement of our Lord. There's much grace to be found in this cry of lamentation from our Savior. It's good news because it means that those whom the Son has redeemed will never be forsaken. Everything He endured, He endured for those who trust Him. He was forsaken that you might never be abandoned. He drank from the cup of judgment that you might drink freely and fully from the cup of salvation. He uttered those words that no son or daughter of God will ever have to repeat those words. It's good news, too, because it means that he can be touched with all that touches your life today. Because in his life and in his death, he endured the full range of human trauma and human tragedy. He suffered all that there is to suffer and more in our humanity Therefore, the Bible says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain grace and mercy in our time of need. Let us come to the table today boldly, full of joy and gladness. Because of Christ, our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west the moment we confess and forsake them. Because of Christ, our sins have been dropped into the sea never to be revealed in the court of heaven again. Because of Christ, our sins have been blotted out as with a thick cloud. Because of Christ, we're filled with a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. Gold and silver could not secure our pardon. It required nothing less than the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Isaac Watson, that hymn we sang today. What a great hymn. Amen. Rich, rich, rich. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful and grateful more than words can express today because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. For at Calvary's cross, we see your justice, the satisfaction of your justice. We see the expression of your holiness, and we see there what every sin deserves. And yet at the cross, we also see an abundant mercy, a mercy that knows no bounds, a mercy that's full and free and sufficient for all of our needs. And like the Apostle Paul, we would pray today that our only boast would be in Christ and Him crucified, risen, and reigning. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.